Welcome to another episode of the Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean DeBias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. Welcome, everybody. We've got a great guest today. She's a, a retail maven, a global brand creator, who's just a, a good friend of the program, Millie Kendall, who's the CEO of the British Beauty Council. Welcome, Millie. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Lovely day. Yes, Thank yes. Times. So you're in the UK. I am in uh, Colorado, which is not a country, but uh, it's a uh, yeah, it's beautiful out here too. The um, thought we'd start with some data as usual. Not a lot for those of you that are on the podcast. Just one slide today, and um, essentially it talks about the Revive Health and Beauty Index. So one of the things we're seeing, um, if we want to switch to that slide there is um, both in our data at Revive is consumer engagement is up with online apps over 200% to be conservative. And the uh, the interest in selfie skincare analysis with your own phone on your PC has gone up as well as the interest of consumers to have recommendations given to them and the ability to actually get those into your shopping cart quickly and actually buy them. So all those indexes are up. Our friends at McKinsey have been doing regular weekly studies. This current one is a consumer intent study that we think is very interesting. Basically is showing how consumers are switching to brands and switching to different retailers. And um, interesting data here is many of them, over 20% are switching to store brands. Not sure if that's because of availability or not. Um, and others are switching to uh, all different types of websites. So consumers, we've never seen them more open to switching brands, switching retailers, switching to digital than ever before. And if you look at the intent to continue that behavior, it's around 50%, which is abnormally high, quite frankly. Normally people would try something, they're trying things and they actually are liking them. So that data is interesting. It does correlate with what we're seeing um, in some of the Revive Beauty Index data as well. Uh, my only punchline here is it's a, I think, I will talk to Millie about this, it's a good time for big marketers to be spending money on going after consumers. With consumers so open to willing and to try and experiment with whether it's a brand or a retailer or an e-commerce provider or any kind of a digital media company, um, your uh, return on investment is probably going to be a little bit higher right now with consumers kind of open to that. So uh, that's interesting. And we're seeing that in, in selfie skincare diagnostics as well. Our platform is open where people can try new things and, and the data is showing that uh, this is a trend that we don't think is just going to end when a pandemic ends around the, around the world. So with that, I'd like to kind of, uh, kind of switch to uh, a little bit about what's going on with uh, the British Beauty Council. Millie has um, got some interesting uh, uh, data for us and we're gonna have a great discussion, but maybe just start out, Millie, talking about what is the British Beauty Council? It almost sounds like the BBC if I use the acronym, but uh, totally different group. Maybe tell us a little bit about it to get started. Maybe not that different. Um, we're British. <laughs> so um, the British Beauty Council is very akin to the British Fashion Council. It's obviously quite unique. I don't, you don't have anything particularly similar in the US. Um, and we are uh, a nonprofit. We're an organization um, that has been tasked to, with raising the reputation of the beauty industry in the UK. And I think, um, Primarily, we kind of came together because there was an intrinsic um, issue with the beauty industry and its reputation here in the UK, both in terms of our um, messaging, our mm -hmm. services, the reputation, 
um, of the industry in general. And the first thing that we did was defined the industry. So in 2018, we defined the British beauty industry so that we knew exactly what it encompassed because that had never been done before. And then last year, we valued the beauty industry. And um, I heard those numbers were massive. Yeah, very high. I mean, I was actually quite, there was six months of like holding my breath because it could have been quite low. I, I had no idea <laughs> what it would reveal. Um, yeah. And it turned out that um, the contribution to Britain's GDP from the beauty industry across all channels is 28.4 billion pounds, which so was that's the total value of the entire ecosystem. And then what, what is the actual spend on uh, beauty? 27.2 billion in 2018, which is again, pretty high. So that's um, the value. And then in your data, I saw something about 3 billion in terms of spend. What was that number? It was close to three. That's actual makeup, cosmetics alone. Oh, uh, okay. Just makeup, because wow, that's a lot of makeup. Yeah, that's a lot of makeup. So generally it's, split between um, personal care, personal enhancement, which is what we call it, and then services. And they're fairly equal. I mean, I would say, you know, roughly 8 billion in total each. Right. So you know, here in Chicago, we have a, a group that um, called 1871, one of the largest incubators in the world. And we kind of measure jobs created as well as investment, of course. What what kind of jobs numbers does your industry um, drive? It's to 600,000 um, jobs in the UK. I think it's one in every 60 jobs in the UK is in the beauty industry. So obviously we've been lobbying government for the past four months to ensure <laughs> our industry is supported throughout this time. Um, right. A majority of those are, um, a large proportion of those are freelancers, self-employed. So it's tricky times for our industry, um, but and and our our contributions, our tax contributions, um, pay for the equivalent of the salaries of two hundred fifty thousand nurses. And I think before COVID nineteen, there were two hundred eighty thousand nurses in the UK. So we're a pretty viable industry, you know. Right. We're, we're sort of you know, um, I th I think it's the first time that the government have taken us seriously. And, yes. It was, you know, we, we are designed to sort of bring everyone together. So we do include people like the manufacturers and the media and the hairdressers and the nail techs and, you know, product developers. So we've pulled it all together. And I think that's what's made it different. And what, what can other countries, regions around the world listening and, you know, learn from, many of them don't have beauty councils. There's similar, similar kind of groups that industry associations and stuff. But, you know, what have you learned in the last couple of years? You're essentially, we're a startup. Um, and, and anything you can apply elsewhere? I think it's very important. So when we when we set ourselves up, there are plenty of industry bodies. You know, we're not sort of, um, you know, we didn't yeah. go to sort of like sit alongside them or butt up against them. But one of the things that I was very keen to do was to have a consumer-facing industry organisation. And I think that if you look at the success of brands over the past four years, maybe five years, it's those that read the temperature of the consumer that succeed. It's the glossiers. It's the, the brands that use the consumer to create the tempo of, of the brand equity and the, the um, new products that they launch. And I think that as an organization, I think what we've done is we've made ourselves very consumer facing, very yes. open, very transparent but very much appealing to the consumer that doesn't know enough about our industry. So we are a place that you can come if you are 
um, if you work within our industry, but you equally, we've made ourselves a place to come or a platform or a group of people um, where the consumer can come and get more information about what it is we do. And the beauty and cosmetics brands um, are also members? Yes. Yeah, we are. are they both uh, both indie independents as well as the large uh, ones? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my entire career has been about create, you know, working with independent brands. I launched some of the sort of, you know, some of exactly. the brands in the 90s that became, you know, part of the Estee Lauder or the L'Oreal group. Um, so I'm a big fan of those. So I have my private business where I um, do marketing and PR for those brands. Um, so, yes, they can. Membership is free. Um, and we rely on patronage to sort of keep the nonprofit churning. So that's I'm, nice. That's unique. Yeah. What? So let's just talk about the indie brands. Quite frankly, in any industry, there are always these startup brands. But you know, we're focused on health and beauty, and and um, right now, what can they do? Um, kind of into this pandemic, and then coming out of it, we've been talking on the show a little bit. Um, there will be a life after it, so uh, life will get back to normal. But um, what do you see are good opportunities for indie brands? You know, who are kind of struggling to get out there because your members are marketing globally. It's not just a UK footprint. Yeah, no, of course, of course. I think that, um, oh, well, there's a number of things. So, so indie brands, I think, are in a really interesting position because they have a very large voice at the moment. They are known to the consumer. Um, and the consumer is driven by purpose, efficacy. They want to hear from a founder. And so there's an immediate contact that an indie brand can have with a consumer that the big you know, FMCGs struggle with. So I think right. it's important to know what's, what you have, what arsenal you have, you know, what your assets are. Um, right. Obviously, there are marketing costs to putting your brand out on social media, um, but there are also um, benefits to being able to market via uh, digital media in terms of, um, especially when you're a founder, because you can really market with your own voice. And I think you can really sort of speak directly to your consumers. Um, and, I, you know, and, and you see a lot of that. I and mean, a lot of brands like Bobby and others, they, you know, they started out that way. They were just tiny little companies, but they leveraged her name and her brand. And, you know, the next thing I know, they're being acquired. When we first, I launched Shuemura, I launched Aveda, I launched, I worked with Tweezerman. We had no internet. We had to market without the internet. That was so difficult. It was all about word of mouth. And we did it before we had this amazing, you know, platform that reached, you know, the darkest corners of the smallest countries. So there is a massive, massive opportunity. Um, and I, I do think that those brands that are, that, that do have the efficacy and the sort of depth of concept are the ones that rise, they're the cream that rise to the top. That's a very British thing because our milk used to have cream on it. I know, I, I remember, I used to live over there. I love the milk, love the milk deliveries. It's a kind yeah. of a good analogy, that personalization of, yeah. um, of um, uh, the indie brands. And unfortunately it's not always followed by the budget, um, but. Uh, no, but I think, but I think that because you're, because those indie brands, because you start small, you don't, you're not chopping massive budgets. So you're, you're sort of, your path isn't changing as much as some of the larger brands who have had to say, well, we have to chop that. We have to furlough our staff. We have to chop those budgets. So you're not having to change as much as some of the larger brands are. So there's a real opportunity to sort of claw your way through what is essentially a very 
um, noisy market. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think, you know, the the rise in self-grooming, I mean, we're all having to look at, you know, home waxing, there's a rise in um, facial devices, body devices, um, you know, huge percent uplift in, in, you know, eyebrow tinting and, and, and such things, home hair colouring. So I think for a lot of brands, um, we, we're obviously seeing an e increase in e-commerce. E so for a lot of brands, it's a real opportunity for them to sort of enter into the market with some vigour. Yeah, I'm just looking at the chat window here. So uh, one of the questions is from an indie brand. It's like, you just touched on it. How do you actually punch through all that digital noise out there? So a lot of the advice about, hey, consumers are, the data shows that they are more willing and open right now. Well, guess what? Everyone is hammering them with messages right now. Even the largest corporations in the world are talking about how personal they are with them. And, and personalization is a huge trend going on. But, uh, yeah, they're kind of pushing on your question. Any other tips about how to punch through the noise I think I think the thing is is that you have to have a voice that people want to listen to you know there's it's no good sort of don't copy somebody else's format that's a given you know there are I think that you have to have something very unique and very different you have to know who your market you have to know your community and I, I said this once before that generally speaking when you create a brand or you develop something there's something personal about it there's something in it for you you know you've you've poured your heart and soul into that brand there will be like-minded people and generally you'll know those people. So you have to kind of start with what's close to you and hope that that, that builds. So it's like anything. If I create a brand, it's almost a mirror image of who I am and what I like. And it's, I've pulled on friends and family to give me input into the development of that product. So that product then is my immediate market it are my immediate friends and family, the people around me. I mean, that's what being a maven is, isn't it? So the Paul Revere thing, it's sort of, you know, shouting from the, from your bedroom window, hey, look, you know, isn't my product wonderful? Um, and I think that don't go too far away from home at that point. You know, you want to really reach out to like-minded people and then those people will do the sort of heavy lifting for you. They will then spread the word. It really is about word of mouth. But... I think you have to have a very clear purpose and a very clear message and have um, depth of concept. It's no good you you thinking, hmm, you know, yeah. there's an idea I've seen on the internet. Let me let me copy that. And, and you know, it, it has to have... There is a lot of that going on. Just keep trying things and to see what sticks in different countries. We another question, uh, another question similar to that. Should I focus... Uh, sounds like a brand that's got a few million um, already of customers, but you know, should I focus globally or be more, you know, regional in the messaging? So you just said stay close to home if you're an early indie type of brand. Yeah, I, I do think that you have to act um, act local. I think that there's there's a certain when not when I launched Shuamora and Aveda, and they were yeah. I knew both the founders. Um, I had to sort of almost translate the messaging for the local market. Now I do think that you have to think on a global platform, but think globally. Um, and it's an old saying, but act local. But I do think it's very important to communicate with the local market. Um, they are they do have varying differences, so I think that's incredibly important. Yeah, but you're you're kind of a rebel personality, uh, similar to uh, 
myself and others. So that's not always some skill that they can pick up. So obviously getting getting some help along the way might be good. That's true, but there are a lot of people that you can you can call on for help. I mean, or just be yourself. Maybe not be a rebel. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think that you know, there's something to be said about that. We we so we ran a competition last year called the Next British Beauty Brand. We had 180 applicants overnight, literally overnight. And, um, Sounds like a TV show. Yeah, it was great. I mean, we are going to sort of um, video it this year. And um, the four finalists were very compelling. They had very compelling stories. One was a brand called By Sarah London, and the two sisters had developed this product because one of them had had a rare form of leukemia. And there was, um, and, the, and the products were created so that her sister could massage her, in, you know, into health, sure. back to health. And the story was real, and it, it compelled me. I still buy it today. Um, and I would spend my money on that brand because the story, um, I didn't have a direct connection, but I had a connection with them. They were real. Their story was beautiful. Um, and I really felt connected to them in a way. Um, uh, you know, and I think that that's really important. And it doesn't, they're not loud voices but they have a great story to tell. Right. Let's talk about um, personalization. What, uh, what are your thoughts on the personalization trend, both in making custom products as well as doing diagnostics, so at least you buy the right products, which is um, kind of how I, I define it. Yeah, so this might be quite controversial because I did launch actually a custom um, personalized um, hair care product about mm, four or five years ago with a guy called um, Will King from King of Shaves. Oh, yeah. We launched it in the UK and then it went into Ulta. And it's, it's a difficult uh, market in terms of, um, it, it, there are a few brands that have done it quite well actually since then. Um, we found it quite tricky at the time. And, um, but I do believe as a woman, I wake up every day and I don't, don't do the same, I have, don't have the same regime every day. So I think personalization is in our, in our DNA, really. I mean, I assess my, what I wear and what I do based on various different attributes, what the weather's like, where I'm going, who I'm seeing. Obviously, I'm not going very far at the moment. Um, and, you know, I don't wear the same clothes every day. And so I don't think you should have the same skincare routine or wear the same makeup every day. So I think personalization is part of who we are. And um, so I think it is very important. I mean, it would be great if I woke up and something told me, hey, look, you know, the weather's like this. You should actually wear, use that skincare product. I mean, that to me is... Um, that would make my life a lot easier. Um, but I think, I think we, we ourselves, we self-diagnose anyway. We do that with medicines. We do that with our health. And I do think we do that to some degree with our beauty. So I think if you bring it back to your own, you know, it's not just about personalization brands as, as such, because I, I wonder, um, whether that's just a marketing buzz at the moment, I think generally speaking, we all personalize on a daily basis. Yes, making custom products is a very different business model you know, with tools like Revive, you know, being able to take a selfie that actually figures out where you are, what the humidity index is, and you can even put in some of your own preferences. At least sometimes it seems like it helps you purchase products, but we've never really looked into, well, yes, but also just using them every day when you when you wake up, what's giving getting another opinion from someone beside your spouse might be useful. Yeah. That's interesting. I've got a client, um, and a, a very good friend of mine, she's a makeup artist in the States called Gillian Dempsey, and she's just launched an, an, launched an app called Fife, which is, she's a very well-known makeup artist, and um, 
her app is uh, all about personalization and, and you take a selfie, you send it to her and she makes you over and then sends you uh, pretty much a shopping list. Um, and she's just launched it literally within the past two weeks, I think. Um, and, and she's seen a, a massive amount of traffic. Uh, that sounds interesting. I'll put that in the, uh, the summary of the uh, podcast. Yeah, yes. um, a couple of questions about switching to your your opinions on large retailers, um, not just in the UK, and, and what's going to happen there, and as well as some of the big brands over the next year. Um, I think the large retailers have been hanging on by their fingernails for a long, long time. I think we were saying, I was saying to you um, a while back in the 90s, I went to a summit, I, I think it was WWG Beauty Summit, and there was a a talk of how the department stores were struggling. Um, so I think that's quite tricky. Um, they've got quite a tricky time ahead of them. I think a lot of that for me is down to um, the blogosphere has kind of taken over where the retail consultants used to stand in. So you used to go and talk to somebody in a store and say, look, my skin is like this, my hair is like this, what, what color lipstick I should wear. And now you can, you know, look at Caroline Hiron's Instagram feed and know exactly what skincare products are, you know, worth spending your money on or look at Sam Chapman and look at the latest makeup products. So I think that um, we've sort of switched focus. And so I think, and also I think that the department store brands had a very brand dominant approach to selling and they didn't adapt quick enough to the woman to woman approach that the blogosphere kind of, you know, in the social media, digital media that, 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 that gave, they gave us, you know, we could watch what essentially was the girl next door doing her makeup. There was no threat. It didn't feel like we had to buy anything, but we got great advice. And because I think department store brands didn't adapt quick enough, I think they lost the customer. And right. And, and there's still kind of 90s early 2000s thinking about digital is about your website versus all the influencer sites, thousands of them that are tiny up to a, you know, a Pinterest and a TikTok and all these other influencer sites that are, you know, not really telling people what to buy, but it is playing more and more into the shopping cart uh, funnel. Um, uh, the other day about um, um, to do with skim links, there's been a real increase in, um, uh, Skimlints, which obviously is the affiliate program for, can find it. Um, and I think that was that's quite interesting that you know the the affiliate programs are on the rise. I, I just think that the 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 method of selling didn't didn't adapt quick enough, and I think that's been a real problem. I, I still like to go into stores. I think we all want the experience in the theatre. What we don't want is to be you know I've been chased through department stores with hair straighteners and being asked you know let me fix your hair i don't want to be told that and so i think that 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 model didn't update itself quick enough yes uh how about switching to the big brands what do you see ahead there just a uh, lot of m a over the last 10 years them actually buying up these boutique brands versus starting them themselves yeah i mean what i would like to see as a, uh, over and above what what we will see <laughs> what i would like to see is them almost like devolve like like government you know devolve to local authorities you know i'd like to see them have smaller marketing teams that represent the brands better because i think what what's happened is and this is just from a brand perspective maybe not from a consumer's perspective because maybe the consumer doesn't know 
Bobby's owned by Estee Lauder or Joe Malone is. But I think from a brand perspective and founder perspective, we or they feel like they lost their voice. And I think then it muddies the waters a little bit. And if you want the consumer to make a choice um, and an educated choice, um, I think you need to devolve the voice back into the brand. And so I think a lot of these companies have um, sort of global marketing teams that work across brand. And I feel that, you know, break that down, make that smaller, make it more cost effective, but but allow those right. brands to have their own voice. And I think that's going to be very, very important, um, you know, especially with the amount of noise on on digital they're going to have to somebody said to me the other day and this is really important to, to understand is that in 10 months our business acumen online will be where it would have been in 10 years if it hadn't been for COVID-19 so we need to adapt very quickly because we're going to be there's a rapid change about to happen and so and those indie brands will have more opportunity now to cut through you know before it was who could get on the shelf in Selfridges. Um, exactly. Yeah, we mentioned that in the uh, Revive Beauty Index a few weeks back that even a lot of the laggard baby boomers who were not using a lot of online have migrated there now and they may stay there. May, they might not run to a, uh, a local shop to you know buy a health and beauty product. They might just pick them up online and it might be relationships they developed during this time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I do think that there's a lot of experimentation going on um, and I think that you know, I've discovered home brands that I wouldn't have, electronic brands that I, I wouldn't have thought to purchase before. Um, but I do think that that's um, incredibly important. I, th I think, you know, we, it's it's almost like you said, we're going, going back to normal. I don't think we'll ever really go back to normal. I think things will have changed and quite dramatically. Um, I don't think it's sort of uh, doom and gloom for the beauty industry because I think we're pretty nimble. And I think we've been set up to change. Um, I think something like well, a very, very small percentage of our, our sales in the UK are purchased online. We're still very much a country of shoppers. You know, we like to go into store. Um, but I think there's been like a 60% increase across most of the online beauty platforms in the UK. So, you know, we're on our way. You know, if it's a good experience and the product arrives quickly and nicely and efficiently, why would I go back to you know, traveling, right. what we've got probably in the UK is with, we, we travel by, you know, crammed trains and buses and people aren't going to want to do that in the short term. No, you are a unique country because the footprint is, you know, so many local shops and we, we're just not seeing that in, in many of the industrialized countries that um, I don't know how far I have to drive really in the States to, to get something that unique. It's not around the corner as much as it used to be. But you sit in your own car, whereas, you know, if I go into town, I've got to sit on stand, you know, I'm crammed in a tube carriage and I'm not going to do that. It's, I can't see returning to that in a way. So I think that there has to be a sort of slight shift in um, why I'm going into those stores. You know, exactly. We have more to deliver, more to offer. Um, but yeah, I think I think on, online is, is a very interesting and I think it's great for indie brands because at the outset, it's low entry, it's low, it's low you know, there's not a, a, a huge um, cost to it. Exactly. Well, Melly, we want to thank you. Um, just any parting comments about how you think uh, things are going to open up uh, 
in, in the UK over the next uh, few months? Well, I think when we go back to um, when, when, when lockdown's lifted, I'm going to go back and I'm going to have my hair done uh, and my nails. And um, so I think we're going to see a massive boom in services um, in the short term. And, um, and, and I think things will have changed for, in, in, a, in a way um, for good. I, re I really do believe that. But I don't think that it's doom and gloom. And I, you know, beauty products have been up there with food, home, pet, health, you know, so we have retained buoyant, fairly buoyant sales throughout this past month and a bit. Um, Great, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So um, I'd like to thank uh, Millie, Millie Kendall, the uh, CEO of the British Beauty Council and check in with us next week. We are going to have an episode about how do you reopen the economy country by country, area by area, specifically learning from what can we see in the early signs of what's going on in China? So tune in next week and we'll see you there. Millie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Stay safe, please. Yeah, you too. Cheers. Thank you.